Welcome to the FinTech One-on-One Podcast, episode number 378. This is your host, Peter Renton, chairman and co-founder of FinTech Nexus. Before we get started, I want to tell you about a new event we are hosting in London on October 17th and 18th. Called Merge, it is focused on the intersection of traditional finance and Web3. Regardless of the price of crypto tokens, the technology being developed by Web3 startups has the potential to completely transform the financial system. Our event will be bringing together leaders from Web3, fintech, and traditional finance to discuss how this transformation will take place. Find out more and register at fintechnexus.com. Today on the show, I'm delighted to welcome Logan Allen. He is the founder and managing partner at Fin Capital. Now, Fin Capital is a VC firm. They haven't been around that long, but they have already amassed a hundred portfolio companies. Wanted to get Logan on the show because I think he has some really interesting things to say about the current environment. We go into his advice in some depth that he provides for founders. Really interesting um, perspectives here. I think all the fintech founders. Uh, should really listen to this. It's really how to navigate this unique time period, how to get through it, when he thinks the IPO window might reopen and how that's going to take place. We talk about why fintech founders should really not be trying to raise money right now. Probably not a surprise there. And he gives his perspective on what sort of the new normal is going to look like. It was a fascinating interview. Hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the podcast, Logan. Great to be here, Peter. Okay, so let's kick it off by giving the listeners a little bit of background about yourself. You've been around fintech for a while. You've had some interesting roles. Why don't you give the listeners some of the highlights? I've been a fintech nerd since the start of my career. Started in management consulting in the early aughts with uh, Capgemini, where I was helping large banks, asset managers, insurers, and then ultimately private equity firms, hedge funds, family offices. Think about their technology strategy operations and doing quite a bit of implementation around that work. So focusing on enterprise software to start my career. Initially, that was helping code, integrate, implement. Thankfully, third-party software started to emerge. So it became more about market mapping, diligencing, selecting, and then implementing inside of large banks. And that really gave me a view inside of this industry but coming at it from a technology lens. Mm -hmm. And then ultimately went in-house, so to speak, at a client, City National Bank, where I helped run digital strategy with a focus on our asset and wealth management businesses. And then ultimately Invesco, where I had a similar job, focusing more on our family office wealth management business and really focusing on bringing new technologies to bear. I was running around Silicon Valley so much while I grew up in Europe. I spent most of my formative years here in the Valley from a high school perspective, went to Sacred Heart Prep in Atherton, California. So all my friends were in tech and venture at that time, and I was still running around in a suit and tie and got a bit <laughs> of an entrepreneurial itch and decided that you know fintech was going to be the future, particularly was interested in what was happening with consumer and neobank applications with obviously PayPal and Lending Club and Prosper emerging around that time. And caught up with Mike Cagney and started working with him on SoFi while I was going to business school at Stanford. 
worked with Mike, worked with a number of other companies in the fintech world, and just became very immersed in that space. From there, it became more about angel investing, investing in it professionally, initially in generalist seats, and became disinterested and frankly, a little bearish on generalist models in kind of the, I'll call it 2015, 2017 range, and just couldn't be on investment committees where I was bringing fintech deals to the IC and others were bringing things like VR and health tech and biotech. And I was like, I don't know how to vote or underwrite on this. This feels wrong. So I went back to SoFi in 2017 to really build out corporate development ventures. And at that time, look at helping take the company public and got the first two stood up. We did 10 minority investments off the balance sheet and then acquired two businesses while I was there. And obviously the management team turned over. And so in 2018, I started Finn. So that's a bit of background on me professionally on a personal basis. I'm married, live here in San Francisco and in Russian Hill. I've found, thankfully, in a post-COVID environment, my travel to be a lot more structured. And so I have a pretty good sense for what my travel schedule is going to be the the rest of this year. That travel has been primarily focused on being in New York, Miami, LA, and then Europe, where we have a London office now. So I was in Europe for all of June, which was terrific. Kicked it off with Amsterdam and Money 2020 in Europe, and then was at Super Return in Berlin, and then spent two weeks in London where I was uh, spending time with our team and, and our founders there. So I want to kick it off by just, you describe on your LinkedIn profile, you say you lead off with fintech nerd and VC. So, and clearly you've got a lot of passion for fintech. What is it about fintech that attracts you? I come at it from an impact perspective. What technologies that I could potentially invest in are going to drive the biggest impact. And that could be impact on GDP in various countries. It could be impact on consumer and merchant lives. It could be impact on you know reducing fraud and cyber risk and so forth. There's just so many dimensions through which to look at impact. And we are ESG managers. So we're UNPRI signatories. That takes the form of using ESG metrics and the way we evaluate businesses, as well as how we measure them ongoing. Really capital G for us in many senses, because we're not a prima facie social impact investor seeking out double or triple bottom lines in businesses, albeit we do have some companies that fit that profile. And so when I think about me being a fintech nerd, it's what I've been doing my entire career since getting out of undergrad. And as I've publicly commented on it. I fell into it a little bit. My first job at Capgemini, I was selected to be in the financial services group simply because I had done an internship at Citigroup my junior <laughs> summer, which involved more cold calling and getting people sandwiches than anything else. And so I had very little perspective on the financial markets and financial services all outside of you know some economic studies in undergrad. And so Capgemini looked at that one job on my resume and said, oh, well, he must know a little something about financial services. And of course, when you go into consulting, day one, you're supposed to be the expert in the room on, on all those topics. And so for me, it's always been a core part of my focus. I enjoy the types of people that work in this industry, really strong intellects. You have to be you know, high integrity. You have to be fiduciary in your orientation or you just won't last long quite candidly. Mm-hmm. And so it tends to attract the types of people I want to spend my days with. And to me... Running Finn does not feel like I should be getting paid uh, and I have fun every day. And so that's a very good sign. And this is my last job. So that's why I call ourselves FinTech Nerds. And then the other part of that is just fundamentally at Finn, 
we don't hire non-former operators. We want to see operating experience predominantly in fintech settings, but also having some perspective in corporate operating settings as iPad as well, because that gives you a very specific purview because, you know, the enterprise software companies we're investing in are typically selling into those businesses, whether those are banks, asset managers, insurers, or large corporates. So understanding what that seat feels like and how those people think is really critical. You have to have walked thousands of miles in entrepreneurial boots Otherwise, you don't have the empathy to work with those entrepreneurs long term. You don't have the credibility to really underwrite what they're building. And then you really can't add long term value post investment, which is the most critical part of that equation. Got it. Got it. Okay. So then maybe you could just touch on the founding story of, of Fin Capital. What was the impetus to get that off the ground? Well, I would say a couple things. One is there wasn't really a long-term home for me at SoFi in a venture seat when the management team got turned over and Anthony Noto came in. Rightfully so, he was very focused on shoring up core business. And I think him and Michelle Gill and the rest of the management team have really done an exceptional job. Obviously, they've had some headwinds on the macro side and in government policies around student loans. Real large, it's an extremely well-run business. There just clearly wasn't a long-term home for ventures there. And so I decided to spin out on that regard. I could have gone and joined another specialist or a generalist VC at that time, but saw some gaps in the industry that weren't being addressed by those players. Number one, nobody seemed to care or be underwriting to B2B fintech. Everybody was chasing consumer. Everybody was chasing SMB. And having come out of that world at SoFi, I recognized how difficult those business models were. And frankly, having been talking to banks and public market investors as part of the SoFi pre-IPO process, they didn't really love our business model. (laughs) The idea of having a balance sheet, credit risk, significant marketing spend on CAC, and transactional revenue base where clarity around LTV and upsell was, was fairly challenging led them to believe that we should be valued at tangible book, whereas our private market investors viewed us as a technology company where we were getting to traditional tech multiple credit. And that, to me, was a wake-up call because I said, all right, well, if that's going to be the case, and the M&A space for consumer and SMB has not been that interesting, right? Credit karma hadn't happened yet. Mm-hmm. Things were not moving as it relates to the M&A markets. There were some very small kind of tactical, more aqua hire type outcomes, a la Goldman buying Adam Dell's first company, Clarity Money, to form Marcus. That was it, right? There was not a lot of movement there. And and the best businesses that were going public and then performing well in the public markets really weren't fintech companies. Lending Club was getting crushed at that point. On Deck was hurting. Funding Circle was hurting. I was like, if I'm going to invest in these things and I need to generate returns, I need to find a different part of the fintech world to invest in. And that became B2B fintech, specifically what we call SaaS Plus. So in the B2B fintech world, there's two types of models. There's take rate businesses and there's SaaS plus take rate businesses. We're investing in those SaaS plus take rate businesses, the pure play to take rate businesses, a la Marketa in the public markets and now Stripe in the private markets have really struggled in terms of the longevity of those businesses, maintaining gross margins, being able to achieve long-term EBITDA positive type businesses. And, you know, they've kind of acted a little bit if you will, vis-a-vis public market scrutiny like those consumer and S&P businesses. And so where we've just been hyper-focused is true enterprise software that also takes advantage 
of the network effects that they're creating in their core business. So that was number one. There didn't seem to be anybody focusing on this topic. Number two, nobody seemed to be bringing, at least publicly and in the entrepreneurs, I was getting feedback from a demonstrable operating playbook where they were adding meaningful value beyond capital. I started to see capital getting weaponized or commoditized, you know, SoftBank being kind of the first player in that, Tiger coming later. Those business models can work, but I didn't really want to be a passive investor. I didn't want to look entrepreneurs in the eye and say, hey, I'm just going to hand you a check and then check in every quarter on how it's going. We want to be very active, value-added investors. And every VC says that, but I wanted to show through an operating playbook and then a tech platform, which we built called Lighthouse, that I could actually deliver on that and then hold ourselves accountable. So we actually ask our CEOs every quarter, how are we doing through you? And we use a version of a net promoter score, zero through 10, would you recommend us to other entrepreneurs? And it's a very simple question. And we're doing a great job and adding value beyond capital. They're going to probably be a nine to a 10, which thankfully consistently across our now 100 company portfolio, they've been very happy with the value add we've been bringing. And that's been tech enabled, but also hands-on through our team. So that was number two. We didn't see anybody really demonstrating that. And then number three, I looked around at all the other VCs, and a lot of them are former investment bankers or consultants and didn't have fintech operating experience. Or they came out of corporate banks or credit shops and you know went into VC because they felt like they could have an opportunity there. And I think former operators make the best VCs, particularly if you just take a long view on the space in terms of having edge and underwriting and then having edge and actually being able to add operating value ongoing and have a very different tenor of a relationship with those founders. So mm-hmm. that's why I started Finn. I started as a solo GP. My first 18 months, I was by myself. And that was really a lot of sweat equity. It was very hard. I have a lot of empathy for first-time GPs and emerging managers. And it is a very tough gig. And then I started to add to the team as I was able to raise capital and put money to work and did that very carefully because partner risk and team risk is a big part of building a venture firm long term. So pause there, but that's kind of the, the encapsulation of the founding story and why we decided to build Thin. Right, right. Okay. And then so what stage of business are you? Series A, Series B? I mean, what's the typical check size? Tell us a little bit about your thesis there. So we're full lifecycle, full stack fintech investors. We can write checks from $100,000 to $100 million. We do that through three private funds. And this is public information. It's on our website. Regatta, which is pre-seed and seed. Check sizes there are kind of 100 k to $2 million. Flagship, which is early stage, seed through B. Check sizes there are 3 to 15 And then Horizons Growth Equity, those are really Series C plus, including pre-IPO, where we're writing checks from 25 to $100 million. So that gives us a full lifecycle capability designed primarily to invest in pre-seed and seed initially, and then follow on those best performers in the subsequent two funds. But obviously, we've been doing some opportunistic outside investing, so to speak, in both flagship and Horizons and net new deals. So for example, in Horizons 2, we're on our second fund cycle, which we wrapped up last year. We've got basically 50-50 follow-on investments and net new investments. Some we recently announced, like sum up net new investments, circle net new investment, prime trust, et cetera. And that gives us the ability to track on companies, build relationships over a long period of time, and then potentially find an entry point down the road if we did miss it in the early stage, because we just turned four in June. So there's a lot of companies that we weren't around for uh, from an early stage perspective that we think 
you know, our really incredible SaaS plus type business models that we want to underwrite to and uh, take a position in and can still underwrite to the return profile of that specific fund. So all three of our funds are absolute return strategies. and We want to be able to underwrite to that exact return profile at that stage of company. So that gives us the ability to full stack from a geo perspective. It's US, UK, Europe predominantly. Four offices in the US, one office in London. And we have this year added, and when we add geos, it's a view that that geo has material maturity in, in B2B fintech, and we're starting to see emergence there. We actually added LATAM. We're about to announce our first LATAM deal. We're actually going to announce two LATAM deals here in September. And then Israel, where you've consistently had very strong software development work. We're starting to see much more fintech in addition to blockchain opportunities emerge out of Israel. So beyond kind of the US, UK, Europe, those are the two other geos that we've added that we're going to be selectively investing in. So mm-hmm. that's the view. We're not doing any deals in Southeast Asia and India and Africa and elsewhere where we just candidly haven't seen the maturity in B2B FinTech and we really don't have any kind of expertise or underwriting edge in those geos. Right. Gotcha. I'm on your site right now and looking at your portfolio companies. You've got some great names on here. Many of the companies have been on my podcast. Could you maybe just, I don't want to go through all hundred of them, but just maybe some of the names that you've invested in. We invest across six subsectors within FinTech today. Now, those six may evolve as those spaces get more saturated, but that includes embedded finance, the CFO tech stack, asset management, capital markets, blockchain, Web3, tech, and then what we call infrastructure and enabling tech. So those six subsectors. So all of our companies fall within one of those six. We've developed very specific theses within those six subsectors that we've been proactively going out and trying to source. And that's been our approach since day one. Those subsectors and theses have evolved and will continue to evolve, as I mentioned, as the space matures and we see saturation potentially in, in specific theses. And there isn't enough white space or green field to operate in. Some examples in embedded finance were investors in Singtera. They're in the banking as a service space. We really believe fundamentally from a thesis standpoint that banks and partnering with fintechs were really struggling to develop an API framework and an integration framework, and frankly, a revenue framework to work with fintechs. And there was going to need to be a middle layer sitting in between that There was also going to need to be a middleware player who provided an app store of capabilities for new fintechs, players that were adding fintech-like capabilities like the incumbents, and then banks who frankly needed those capabilities in order to partner with fintechs, things like regulatory tech, fraud tech, and so forth. So that's one example in the embedded finance space. In the CFO tech stack world, we recently announced Travada. We actually announced it the first day of money 2020 in Europe as they were entering the, the European markets. Travada solves for treasury management for banks to be able to white label to provide to corporate treasurers and those who need to move cash efficiently, understand their chart of accounts, create yield opportunities, and so forth. And there's just a lot of complexity in, in the integration framework and how they exist there. Third, in the asset management and capital markets world, great example of a company we've invested in recently and actually re-upped in it's an era. I think about them as next generation Bloomberg. So they're using AIML, NLP capabilities for live event transcription to really aggregate all market data for specific uh, equities. And so that PMs and those who are trading in the hedge fund world or in the asset management world have a center of their desktop. 
forth in the Web3 blockchain world, they all use Circle again. So, you know, we did the Series F with BlackRock, Fidelity, and Marshall Ways. Our belief is that stable coins are going to be one of the long-term durable, call it themes and or structures in the Web3 blockchain world that persists. We believe that because we think stable coins are going to be used as the future of commerce or consumers purchasing goods in store or online across the world. And nobody's buying pizza with Bitcoin anymore. Secondly, we think about it in terms of money movement. So consumers peer to peer moving money from a remittance perspective or in sending money back home to their families, wanting to be able to do that very securely and inexpensively. And then third, on that money movement angle is institutional money movement. Ripple had a view that they could replace Swift with XRP. Well, I think we all believe Swift is is inefficient and archaic, but that XRP use case did not succeed. My view is that stablecoin will, and that institutional money movement will ultimately be done in stablecoin because the velocity of that movement and the costs are so much more efficient. And then lastly, it's yield, right? So BlackRock is now managing stablecoin much like it's operating in U.S. treasuries. And so we think the yield opportunity there, particularly in this type of rising interest rate environment, is quite attractive. Insurance, kind of the the last ones to the party. (laughs) (laughs) The insure tech world, we're really excited about embedded insurance in particular. Boost Insurance is a great example there where they are allowing people to embed any type of insurance capability into an existing fintech offering, or if you're setting up a new insure tech and you don't want to go out and get licensed in all 50 states and build the underwriting stack, build the insurance and carrier and reinsurance relationships, Boost can do that for you on a white label basis. And then lastly, infrastructure enabling tech, all the picks and shovels. This could be reg tech, it could be big data, it could be cloud migration, quantum computing, those types of areas. Great example here is Oculus, where They are becoming the underlying infrastructure for all lending as it relates to document digitization, fraud detection, data extraction for facilitating those workflows. So those are six subsectors, six company examples Mm -hmm. amongst the hundred we're invested in that we're very excited about. And we still see opportunities and green fields for net new investments. Right, right. Okay. So I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about the deck that you recently produced. It was sent to me by your people and I thought it was really interesting. So I wanted, there was a little catalyst really to get you on here. And goes without saying that we are living in interesting times when it comes to raising capital, raising equity capital specifically, I think is, uh, it's gone through a, an up and down cycle over the last couple of years. But what was the reasoning? What was the drive behind putting this thing together? We have a navigator every quarter and navigator is a version of a deck that we put together for our LPs and for our companies. And there's some shared slides in there in terms of what's happening in the macro and grounding everybody in the data. But in particular, in the first half of the year, we started seeing presentations and videos from some of our peers. And just very candidly, I'm not going to name names. I think everybody knows who they are. It was just a lot of high level motherhood and apple pie. It's mm-hmm. just like, you know, hey, high level, like you should be trimming burn. And it really felt like those organizations were talking down to their founders. And we never talk down to our founders. We view our founders as partners and as peers, number one. Number two, there was no prescription or recommendations having lived through cycles ourselves in terms of, hey, this is real specific advice for you all to take in and consider and to act upon. And then here are number three, 
specific resources in terms of vendors, partners, and others that you can leverage to either trim your burn and take down costs specifically in areas like cloud adoption, your CFO finance function in terms of outsourcing aspects of that. Number two is in potentially uh, fraud or cost reduction issues, pay fact opportunities, all kinds of ways that you can improve your gross margin picture. And number three is potentially layering in some venture debt. So here are our partners on that front that you can work with and consider that your last dollar. And then we provided very specific recommendations in terms of metrics. So we view runway very specifically as 24 months. You want to be able, and this was in Q1, you want to be able to see runway through the end of next year and not be raising priced capital in this market. If you and your operating plan had the first half of this year as your time frame for raising a price round, don't do it. Let's look at trimming burn. Let's raise a strategic safe note. And when we say strategic, that means from your customers and other strategic commercial investors. Mm-hmm. It's going to be great commercial partners, help you increase revenue, which is also helpful to runway and provide for some runway capital, aiming for six to 12 months of runway at that revised burn. So that gives you even more insulation. And then lastly, on that venture, the debt piece, we're recommending three to six months of burn and runway in that venture debt allocation, looking to get either zero or very low warrants coverage, so it'd be less dilutive. And then if you are early stage, pre-seed to A, a lot of these companies and CEOs don't have a finance function. So we recommended an OCFO. We work with a particular company that we recommend. And just understanding your operating model, making sure you're getting it right. And so that if you do need to make some trim on berm, push out hiring decisions, those types of things, you're doing it with confidence and you're only doing it once. So those were some things that we recommended. And then also just providing context and reality around multiple compression. Mm-hmm. So we've got public multiple and EV compression happening at a rapid pace, particularly in fintech. You got rising cost of capital, you have inflationary pressures, and you have global macro concerns happening from geopolitical risk, uncertainty around regulation, and then some contagion issues, particularly in the Web3 and crypto world with Celsius and BlockFi and others whom we passed on, that we're going to potentially create some knock-on effects. And so those were some very specific recommendations we made. The public-facing version of the Navigator is a slightly trimmed-down version versus what we share with our companies because we want them to feel like they're getting our most proprietary, most detailed insights as part of the Finn family. And then we did a webinar. The webinar was attended by 300-plus founders. And it was clear to us that they were hungry for prescriptive recommendations versus these kind of high-level thoughts and opining on the space. And that's been great. What we've done for our companies beyond that is we'll go and provide an updated valuation framework. So here is how you should be thinking about your valuation today relative to public comps and private comps that we're aware of. And if you're pricing a safe note cap, for example, here's specific guidance around that. And we have a team led by Matthew Mann, who's our head of corporate development, who we pulled out of Goldman's big team, who helps work with our companies to be a sounding board on that topic and to provide a very realistic view into how pricing and valuations are really operating this year versus the last four years where you know multiples have been really, really frothy. Companies have, in many cases, not been able to grow into those multiples at this point. And that's creating perilous potential outcomes. We're seeing that more in the consumer and the SB world, where the amount of capital and the capital intensity of those businesses is a lot higher. And as a result, you know, they had to raise at higher valuations. 
That, by the way, is a very nasty flywheel because not only are they looking to raise more capital at higher valuations, but the funds that are supporting those companies have also been raising larger funds and need to write larger checks, right? So that creates this flywheel effect where they're saying, hey, I need to write a larger check. The founder's like, well, I need to take on less dilution. And the only way to solve for that problem is to increase the valuation. And that is a dangerous game as a founder, because then you ultimately might not be able to grow into it. And if you do get a cycle like this, and your your burn is consequently a, a lot higher because you did raise more capital and you felt like you could invest in growth, that creates a potential really dire situation. That's why you're seeing runoff and consolidation in this market. Really is interesting the the way you kind of frame the valuation, how founders should be thinking about it today. Now, I'll share a, a link to the public-facing document you know, when we have published this episode. But I want to touch on the one slide I thought was really interesting. You said the IPO window, and we all know it's pretty much closed now, the IPO window will take 10 quarters, roughly 10 quarters to reopen. So that's really taking us into 2025 is what you're saying. I would say that we're looking at, at probably second half of next year at the earliest, but 2024, 2025, getting back to some normalcy just in terms of the volume of the IPO market and the ability for financial investors to really support those exits. And there's a couple of things inherent in that statement. One is right now we have zero IPO activity. I don't expect right. any fintechs to go public this year unless it's through a SPAC. And you've got Circle going through a de-SPAC process right now publicly. We have a SPAC in the market. We do expect to announce a deal before our expiration. And frankly, it's one of the few games in town. And so that's been an interesting structure to have in this market. Do I think SPACs are here to stay? I'm not sure. I think Gensler and, and the SEC have made it pretty apparent they're not fans. I think there's going to be a lot of runoff, but it's going to be in lower quality sponsors, candidly. And then number two, in terms of the resilience and the and the snapback in public markets, we would expect those B2B SaaS plus businesses followed by B2B take rate businesses to be the first to snap back. So companies like Bill.com, Shopify, and Marketa as examples in that B2B category, followed by SMB and consumer who have been the hardest hit in this market environment. You look at consumer, fintech, those are down since call it January of last year to the present, around 90%, which sounds insane, but is true. SMB is down about 75%. B2B is somewhere in the 20% range, right? Mm -hmm. So you just have had a lot more insulation and those B2B models and financial investors have embraced those higher gross margin, ARR, software-driven businesses with IP, more capital-efficient type models, more so than they have the balance sheet heavy, credit-oriented, heavy CAC and consumer spending. And they just view those as tangible book value businesses at the end of the day. And that's created a lot of this compression. Unfortunately, private market investors view those as tech multiple businesses. And that's created what we call a, a negative arbitrage between the private markets and the right. public markets, which is not what we want. So all of that is happening. And that's why we think it's going to take some time and for the recovery and the IPO windows to really reopen in a meaningful way. As I mentioned, I think they're going to start to open a little bit up in second half of next year on the back of what will hopefully be direction by the Fed that they're going to start pulling back on the interest rate increases, hopefully with inflation under control. And that's going to create, obviously, an improvement in DCF calculations and People feeling more comfortable that the public markets are going to be supportive of IPOs, the, the traditional. And so 
That's what we're telling our companies. That's why we're really focusing on 24 months of runway and really on the private market side, not raising capital again until Q2 through to Q4 of next year. Right. So, you know, if you're looking at raising a price round this year, don't do that. Figure out ways to extend runway, however you need to do it through a combination of burn decrease, strategic saves and venture debt. And the other part of this equation is M&A, right? So there's approximately $2 trillion of cash on corporate balance sheets that look at fintech acquisitions. That could be banks, asset managers, insurers, and then some of the corporate tech players like Amazon, Facebook, Google, et cetera. Two trillions of conservative number, right? You look at that, and they're all looking to play offense right now. And they're seeing huge opportunities to come in with companies that might be struggling with their cash position and offer discounts on their last private round and acquire it, really being left with very little choice. And so that's absolutely going to continue to happen. And thankfully, on the B2B side, there's more M&A activity, more likely acquirers than in the SMB and the consumer world, where that's a more finite potential buy side set. Right, right. Okay, I want to close with a question around valuation. And it feels like we went through this time period where we had abnormal valuations that everyone sort of acknowledged were a little uh, frothy, shall we say. And then we've gone through this downturn, you said 90% valuation drops in some cases. I mean, it feels like we've gone completely the other end of the pendulum. What should we think about as a normal fintech valuation market and what's it going to take to get there? What's happening now, albeit is painful, is, is healthy for private market valuations. Because to your point, public markets had gotten out over their skis. Square Block was trading at 20x trailing sales in Q1 of last year. Today, they're trading at just under two. Bill.com has had some multiple compression, but not as much. And so I think, as I mentioned, the B2B players are going to be the ones that snap back, but it's going to end up somewhere in between, right? So Square Block's not going to get up to 20x trailing sales anymore. In those more SMB and consumer oriented businesses, see kind of valuation trailing sales multiples somewhere between the four to eight X range, right? PayPal, you look at PayPal historically, it's, it's a seven X multiple, even in last year's market. So kind of that four to eight X multiple for consumer and SMB for B2B take rate businesses, they're not going to get valued that much better, unfortunately. I think those businesses end up kind of in the 8 to 10 at most range from a B2B perspective. So that's the Marketas of the world. And they are all very much trying to layer in more software, right? right. More recurring revenue, yep. less uh, volatility in, in their revenue curve. So it's easier for the financial investors to forecast and they can have more confidence in those outcomes. The other category is the SaaS and the SaaS Plus players. And I think those guys get valued at 12 to 15 times trailing sales, and they're going to get more forward multiple credit because they do have ARR and it's easier for those financial investors to get confidence in those end of year or next year numbers. So that's how we see valuations playing out. And those multiples will largely be applied to the private markets as well, particularly in the late stage and growth stages where they look and feel more like a public business. Early stage, you're going to continue to see things pre-revenue, obviously, that will be you know meaningful multiples. But with an eye towards, I would say, more repeat founders. So we only invest in repeat founders. That's a key criteria for us. And those types of repeat founders who have had an interesting exit previously and are starting their next company are going to be able to attract higher valuations or safe note caps at the seed level and then more meaningful price rounds in the Series A 
then it's going to have to normalize, right? In Series B, Series C, you have to show fundamentals and metrics that are going to be able to support the valuations you just raised to. That's kind of how we're seeing the environment right now. And we had pulled out of the late stage markets in 2018 because of those multiples. Now we're seeing more compression and more attractive entry points in companies like SumUp and Circle, who we announced recently, where if the deal had gotten done last year, we'd be talking about probably two to three X the valuation the deal got done at at minimum, in some cases, probably five X the, mm-hmm. the that multiple. So it swung back to being a buyer investor market in terms of entry points and installation and the valuation, whereas it was a founder's market and they were really more dictating terms and creating competition on those rounds. And that was good in some cases if they could actually grow into that valuation. If they couldn't, now they're really feeling like they're in trouble and the pendulum swung back to their existing investors from a control dynamic perspective. That's going to create a lot of runoff and zero outcomes in this marketplace. And I think that net is healthy we need some shakeout. And I think things will normalize this year going into next year. So in short, for investors, it's a great time to have dry powder and to be playing some offense in the portfolio construction. We'll have to leave it there, Logan. Really interesting stuff. Thank you very much for coming on the show today. My pleasure, Peter. Great to be here with you. Thank you. It really is amazing to me how quickly we went from an incredibly free and flowing environment for raising capital to a really restrictive and basically shut environment for raising capital. And as Logan really points out there, that you've got to try and get through this any way you can, batten down the hatches, focus on cash flow, and just try and get through the other side. Because this is going to be temporary. FinTech is uh, its a big industry that is going to be a huge part of financial services for many, many decades to come. And so we're going to get through this little blip. We've gone from one extreme to the other. And as Logan just pointed out, we're going to get to a new normal and uh, it's going to be really, really interesting to see who comes out on top. Anyway, on that note, I will sign off. I very much appreciate you listening and I'll catch you next time. Bye.